My name is Chuck. I'm a happily married man. We'll be this summer 29 years happily wed. And you think to yourself, how does someone who looks that young have been married 29 years? It, it, the, the issue of age and insecurity about it comes up with my wife all the time, who looks much younger than me, but she's the same age, just for the record. Uh, what's remarkable to me is how almost 30 years have rolled by, because I remember the moment when I realized I was in love with a Carolyn. And uh, we had been dating for a couple of months, and uh, getting to know each other and hanging out and doing different things, and then she asked me to go uh, with her on a trip. It was kind of a random multi-point trip where we went to a relative of hers graduation in Delaware, and then... Uh, met the singles group from her church at the beach. And so she just said, hey, you know, why don't you come along? And so I said, great. So um, uh, halfway to the first stop was my sister's house, and we decided we'd stay there for the night and leave the next morning. And we, that evening we were walking around and uh, talking, and we sat down. And as we were visiting, I remember it as clear as day, I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, I'm in love with this woman. And it was just, it was, it was like something had definitely set in that this was a person that I was interested in. And it's a byproduct of the time spent with her, uh, engaging, listening, figuring out, you know, what do you think about the world? What do I think about the world? Do we see the world the same way? Um, and later that weekend, for the first time, we actually had the DTR, as the kids say. We defined the relationship, you know. I, I told her I was in love with her. She told me she was in love with me, and we, and we progressed. Um, this is how it usually works. I mean, we may, like, find ourselves attracted to somebody in public. We may meet somebody in public, but the raw truth is we fall in love in private. You rediscover love in private. And today we're going to see the importance of private conversation as it comes to revitalizing our love for God. Uh, last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit. Jesus has, in this section of Scripture, begin to explain some things about the Holy Spirit. Uh, we'll take a break for Christmas. Can you believe Advent starts next week? Very exciting. And then in, in January, uh, we'll pick up in John 15 with more discussion about the role of the Holy Spirit in producing fruit in our lives. Last week, we actually, if you hadn't heard the sermon, you can get those online at our website or through our iTunes podcast. But the notion of our discussion was the presence of the Holy Spirit is something that was being introduced to the believer for the first time. That, that we now are tabernacles of God's presence. His Spirit literally lives inside of each, and of a, each one of us. And, and, and by way of review, I just want to reread John 14, 20, which was the final verse of our study last week. Jesus said, in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. R.C. Sproul said this about this particular verse. For the church, this means that if you are a Christian, you are in Christ. And if I'm a Christian, I'm in Christ. As a result, we have a mystical union, not only with Christ, but with each other. And that union transcends all other human relationships. This has staggering implications. If I hate someone who is in Christ, I am not only sinning against that person, 
I am sinning against Christ Himself. The realities of the gospel, the truths about what Jesus has done to reconcile us to Himself, are to be the motivating factors for our obedience to Christ. And while last week we introduced the teaching of Jesus about the presence of the Holy Spirit, today we're going to reflect on what needs to be done when we realize that our character, both as an individual and perhaps a church faith community that you're a part of, that these things are out of accord with how Jesus says we are to live. What, are, what do we do when we come to the conclusion that God says, if you love me, you're going to obey my commands, and we realize I'm not obeying his commands, and there are times where I don't even want to obey his commands. What's a person to do at that moment? This week I read an article from a normally trusted source in Orthodox Christian theology, and in it an opinion was expressed that much gospel-centered preaching, which is preaching that's done in our tribe of Christianity where we talk about how the grace of God is what is to move us into all that we do, the concern was that this type of preaching had lost the capacity to exhort or rebuke, ostensibly to promote the grace of God. See, there are those who because of their personality or any number of reasons are moved by what I would call tough love Jesus. I mean, they love a minister who will just yell at them. And I have no understanding of why that's attractive because that would never work for me. I never liked the football coaches who were like, you are a worm. I never responded to anything that was that ugly or negative. Some of these people who express this concern would hope and maybe even insist that churches and preachers should emulate the tough tone that Jesus used with the Pharisees or that Paul used with his adversaries. And I would say it's important to remember exactly whom Jesus was addressing when he took to turning over tables and calling them a bunch of snakes or when Paul used very strong language to call people out. At that moment... It wasn't a broken, humble Christian who was saying, I just feel so weak, I don't know what to do. It was somebody who was a proud mocker of God, somebody who was a a vehement critic and a public nuisance to the church. See, neither Jesus nor the apostle sought to encourage obedience in humble, broken followers by yelling at them or emotionally bullying them through fear in an attempt to produce moral compliance. You just don't see that. Now, I'd hope here at PRISM that we're all in agreement that Jesus commands us to obey God's Word, and that as the Son of God who sits at the right hand of the Father, He said, all authority in heaven and on earth had been given to Him, and so therefore His commands are not optional. So all of us are going to have to face the painful reality that oftentimes Jesus is telling us to do things that we're either ignoring or we are doing the opposite of what he said to do. That all of us are in a place of being disobedient, oftentimes on a daily basis. And that produces what psychologists will call a cognitive dissonance, a pain We know there is a standard that God has for us that we're not meeting, even as Christians, and it causes us a sense of grief. There are times where in trying to get away from that sense of grief or that sense of remorse, um, Christians would call it a conviction, whatever, we will try to uh, salve our conscience or sear them 
by telling ourselves it's not that big of a deal, then I would say we should be worried about our soul when we succumb to the devil's scheme and start asking, as he encouraged our first parents to do in Genesis 3.1, did God really say that? See, when God's word is twisted or turned so that we don't have to do something difficult or hold to a belief that is unpopular, we are walking dangerously close to the line of what is called apostasy. Apostasy is the abandonment of genuine Christian faith for a comfortable, unorthodox accommodation, either to culture or our own desires to disobey the Lord. But Jesus has made it clear in today's passage that to love Him is to obey His Word. Here's what He says in verse 21 of John 14, whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, Prism believes with absolute clarity that we are to obey Jesus. But at the same time, we think Scripture contends that motives matter. Why we obey is every bit as important as obeying. And asking the question of why we obey is often what produces healthy love for God and obedience. Being threatened with death, as is the case in some theocratic countries around the globe, uh, this will produce obedience in the short term, if you didn't know. Uh, But it won't produce an adoration of God. It won't produce long-term fidelity to one's faith. Being culturally pressured not to do certain things might enable you to stop violating a particular norm or a particular behavioral pattern, but that's only as long as there are others around to pressure you. It won't produce a heartfelt desire to change, a desire to love God, or a sincere plea for His empowerment to change for His glory and our good. You see, only when we know God's love for us will we genuinely grow in our love for Him, which is what we want to study today. How do we stoke the flames of love for God so that we will love God and follow His commands at any cost? What to do when you come face to face with the lonely reality that you just don't want to obey God? yet you call yourself a Christian. What do you do in that moment? I remember as as a young Christian, because of the influence of either my Roman Catholic background or the charismatic church background where I actually gave my life to Christ, the impression I got was there was really no hope that until I changed, I couldn't come and talk to God about anything. There was this sense that until I was really ready to repent of that particular behavior, until I changed that behavior, I might as well just stay away from church altogether. And I'm here to encourage you today that that's not God's plan. He wants you to come to Him, even with this admission. The gospel has freed you to be able to come honestly into His presence, not fear for the judgment of your soul, and to pour out your heart to Him, telling Him what you need. Jesus has given us some direction in our passage today, telling us of two means of grace. You have to look closely to see them. But these ways to enjoy Him, these ways to experience Him, 
have often been turned into religious methods. Unfortunately, in some religions, uh, how many times a day you pray is like credit towards your salvation. You can then be secure because you know you have been following the prescribed prayer pattern. While we would think that's not good, the Christian version of that is, do you know how much I pray and how much better that makes me than you? And all of a sudden, these things that were given to us as gifts, these means of grace, these, these, these opportunities we have to experience God become these measuring sticks within a community that make some people feel proud that they're much more mature than those around them. This is why we want today to make sure we understand what the means of grace are. These errors in thinking, this notion of using the means of grace to make ourselves, needing to do them to make ourselves secure with God or doing them to make ourselves comparatively more spiritual looking or feeling better proud about ourselves. Both of these are errors because they, they take us away from what is really the issue. God desires relationship with us. Once reconciled to Him in Christ, now we are, and if you'll permit me to use this pun from time to time at our church, we're prisms through which His light shines so others will see His life through us. This is our function in life. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 16, that we are to let His light shine through us. And that equals doing good works so that others will see Him in us. So what is Jesus pointing to as the means of knowing Him? What has He given us as the, the pathways to knowing Him, to understanding His grace and love so that we will want to love Him in return? If we're stagnant in our desire to obey, if we lack the zeal to do so, what do we do? And so I want to look at two means of grace present in our scriptures today. The first is prayer which is intimacy with God's presence, and the second is Scripture, immersion in God's proclamation. Let's take a look at prayer first. In verses 22 through 24, we read that prayer is intimacy with God's presence. Reading the text, Judas, parenthetically here, not Iscariot, it always kills me too, this poor guy for the entirety of his life after Iscariot had to include this parenthesis, I'm Judas, not Iscariot. I mean, that is a tough call. He said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the father who sent me. Do you hear the description we had Thanksgiving this past week. We had our family and friends in our home. We sat around the table. We broke bread together. We sat around the fire. We talked. We shared our lives together. It wasn't functional or weird. It was relational and intimate. Jesus is saying that if you are His child, if you are a Christian, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit who now lives in you, are coming to make their home with you. This is not the picture of you trying to live out religious principles so that you can appease the wrath of some foreign god. This is someone who wants to live 
and be close to you. And prayer is merely the means of communing with God through the Holy Spirit. Jesus says that the relationship that He and the Father have are akin to what you and I have with each other if we're friends. When we pray, we merely imitate the practice of Jesus who, as He walked this earth, spent much of His time retreating from other people to enjoy the presence of His Father. Listen to three different accounts from three different Gospels other than John's. Matthew 14, 23, of Jesus. And after He dismissed the crowds, He went up on the mountain by Himself to pray. Mark 1, 35, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, He departed and went out to a desolate place, and there He prayed. In Luke 6.12, in these days he went out to the mountainside to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. All three of these describe a a relationship. This This doesn't sound like somebody who's checking off prayers and responding to horns at certain times during the day to tell him, time to get on your knees for a little while. Um, He said, I I need this. I mean, I, I want to experience what it is to commune with my Father through the power of the Spirit. I want to rekindle my relationship with my Father. I I enjoy this. How does uh, any couple rekindle their love for each other? As in pastoral ministry from time to time, you'll meet with a couple who's had their first kids and they're starting to want to strangle each other or they're in this really difficult season of life and their marriage has been less than emotionally intimate. Let's just leave it at that. And then they say, you know, how do we get back that place? And I'll ask, when's the last time you had a date night? Uh, no answer. When's the last time you got away together? A couple of days, just the two of you. No answer. See, the key to any type of rekindling of love is time spent alone. If you want to love your spouse better, or you want your spouse to love you better, you both need to get back to the relational, emotional intimacy you had and discover afresh the reasons why you married in the first place. Time alone with your significant other is the only place where the other manifestations of intimacy will ever experience renewal. And it's no different in our relationship with God. If you want passion to return to your relationship with God, you're going to have to peel off with Him alone. You're going to have to do what Jesus did. You're going to have to say, this is a priority for me. I've, and, and maybe I don't feel it like I did when I first became a Christian, but I want to. I want to know what it means. And that's not going to come by accident. If you don't pray, you won't know God. And if you don't know God, you won't love God. And if you don't love God, you will never obey Him for the right reasons. When you are rightfully concerned that you're not obeying the Father, and mind you, this is important, not to push down or push away this sense that, you know what, what I'm doing is displeasing to God. What I'm not doing that He's commanded me to do, my passivity That's displeasing to God. It's important not to say, I don't want to feel this pain. And God's loving, isn't he? He doesn't want me to feel like this. But in any relationship, because we're broken, in any friendship, in any marriage, in any parent-child relationship, 
Because we're broken, there are going to be moments where we sin against each other and we have to ask for forgiveness and see the relationship restored. And it doesn't help your relationship with whomever to pretend that what you did didn't cause them grief and doesn't make you sad because of it. And so it's the same with the Father. And so if you're rightfully concerned that you're not loving Him, you're not obeying Him, likely your first act of repentance is to acknowledge that you've been ignoring the reality of His presence in your life. Loving God starts with making a commitment to find time to interact with His Spirit through prayer. Once this time is set aside, in that moment, you pray. You meditate on the reality of the gospel. You pour out your heart to the Father. You quiet yourself to recall where you've sinned against God and others. You confess your sins. You receive forgiveness from the Father. This is prayer. You worship God. You ask Him to meet your needs. You commune with Him. Prayer is also the means of unloading our burdens, taking them from our shoulders and casting them onto the Lord's. He said they were his to carry anyway, so at some point, many of us decide, because we're not praying, that we'll carry those. And then they begin to weigh us down. Not even Jesus thought he could live a human flesh life without crying out to God. Jesus, in his humanity, knew that he needed to depend on the Spirit and needed to retreat away to receive encouragement and strength from God. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7 It describes Jesus this way, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Under the intense agony of the cross that was to come, this moment that we are in here, John 14 through 20, where Jesus knows He's in the last days, and he's in a moment where he's about to be turned over, and he's going to be painfully crucified to pay for the sins of all who would ever believe. In this moment of agony, let alone a lifetime that the Scripture says he was acquainted with sorrow and grief, Jesus regularly found strength crying out to the Father in prayer. In the midst of his trials and temptations, Jesus took seriously the role that fasting and prayer played in his survival. And so we have to ask ourselves, when we're faced with trouble, is that our instinct? Do we go to the Father and pray, or do we just complain louder and louder and think that somehow by taking up our complaining to the next, you know, volume number, that it's going to make things better? And in reality, what Jesus did was just simply go to his father. In Matthew 4, Jesus is to, fasted for 40 days in the desert before he had this face-to-face showdown with Satan himself. It was an epic spiritual struggle between our Lord and the devil, whose strategy, even with Jesus, was to twist God's word to say something it didn't. And the Apostle Peter reminds believers then and throughout all ages, that this battle continues. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 6 through 9, Humble yourselves, therefore, under, God's mighty, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. You see, the devil's goal is to devour you. Now, if he doesn't do it from within, I can tell you a common spiritual battle of all Christians is to be chewed up from the inside through anxiety. This is why the Apostle Peter admonishes us to humble and humble ourselves and pray and then cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. If you're somebody that battles anxiety and depression, as I have for coming up on two decades, uh, I can tell you that one of the ways, one of the means of coping with that is prayer. If prayer isn't a part of your life, if the regular casting of your anxiety on the Lord isn't a part of your life, there isn't a medication in the world that's going to help you. Medication will only get the horizon stable. You're still going to have to face the realities of life, which is life is hard. And God knows that we need to depend on Him. Jesus needed to depend on the Holy Spirit. You and I aren't capable of managing our anxiety on our own. And relief of our anxiety is a high priority of the Savior. Through the first means of grace, as we see in prayer, but as we see in our second means of grace, Jesus even speaks to the very subject that we shouldn't be afraid. Our first means of grace is prayer, intimacy with God's presence. The second means of grace, the second way to know God so that you'll love God and want to obey God is Scripture, an immersion in God's proclamation. Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you, not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Do you see the emphasis on Jesus' spoken words? These things I've spoken to you, he says. The Holy Spirit will come and will teach us and bring to remembrance all that he's said to us. See, it's the words of Jesus that reassure us. And it's the character of Jesus that gives them credibility. I love what Jesus says about the peace that he gives. He says he doesn't give as the world does. How does the world give peace? Well, if you watch the news, you know it's negotiated. You know, it's, okay, you will have peace as long as you do this for us, we'll give you peace. No justice, no peace, or some equivalent thereof. People say, I, I want a hunk of land for peace. In World War II, uh, Neville Chamberlain of the United Kingdom tried to negotiate peace with Hitler. And like the case of many of us who've had relationships with people who were not above board, that peace is easily compromised when self-interest prevails. This is the nature of human relationships often. You say, I think I'm going to make peace with this person. They said if I would do this and do that, that we'll be okay. And you do this and do that, and they still aren't okay. 
Relationships of peace in our world are generally conditional and they are unstable at best because they could end at any time. Jesus says something very different. He says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Imagine the, the, those who had been treated unjustly in some world conflict going to their abusers and saying, you know what? You don't have to change anything. We're going to give you peace. You know, that, that, that there was nothing done to deserve the commitment to peace. You don't have to trade anything. We're offering peace. This is what Jesus has done for you and me. He's not saying, hey, you know what? Uh, if you're my child, because um, he's talking to his disciples, you know what? Peace is a negotiation. You have to earn it. Jesus is saying, my peace, I give to you. And unlike the world, it's unconditional and it's utterly reliable. Neither let you be afraid. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In order to experience the Lord's peace, we must rely upon the Holy Spirit to bring remembrance of what Jesus said. This context in John 14, speaking to the apostles, more fundamentally addresses the issue of apostolic authority. The testimony of the apostles that we now have codified in the New Testament. You see, the Gospels were written and affirmed by the apostles of Jesus. This is John's Gospel that we're studying. The Gospel of Mark was likely, according to some scholars, just dictated to him by Peter. The Nicene Creed, which is a 4th century ecumenical creed that Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox churches all proclaim that they subscribe to, says with clarity, we're one holy, small c, Catholic, universal, apostolic church. Meaning that we trace our confidence about who God is, what God says, to what Scripture says. The authority given and promised by Jesus in John 14, when Jesus says, you will remember, the Helper, the Holy Spirit will teach you these things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. In Philippians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul appeals once again to his own apostolic authority and really the Scriptures themselves to say that the pursuit and the experience of knowing peace is the joint project of these two means of grace, prayer and the immersion into Scripture. In Philippians 4, 5 through 9, the Apostle Paul wrote, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Paul's giving a roadmap to experiencing God's peace. It includes prayer, but the second part is this admonition to cognitively acknowledge things that are true and think about those things. And that's what we find in Scripture. Paul 
Additionally, is stating that what he's taught them is worthy of being practiced as the means of experiencing God's grace. Paul clearly believes that he has the apostolic authority to declare truth and expect them to receive it as such. It would be odd, and you should run far and fast from any preacher who would say, what you should do throughout the week is take what I say to you and meditate on it a lot because it will really provide something for you. Your life will be much more enriched by virtue of what I have to say to you. That would be the, the height of arrogance. It also would be something that Scripture would tell us not to do, to base our lives on the truths that people come up with. Instead, what Paul is claiming is that he has this apostolic authority. It's the same thing Jesus had promised to his apostles, that the Holy Spirit would give them clarity, would help them remember, would reveal to them things that would enable them to communicate truth to us. So Paul is saying, what you've learned and received and heard in me, practice these things. And this is where the peace of God comes into play. Now, Paul's declaration or Paul's belief in his own apostolic authority is a far cry from the contemporary scripture critics, some of whom claim to be Christians, who have stripped Paul and the other apostles of the authority that Jesus promised to them. In effect, what they are saying is, did the Lord's word really come through the apostles? And whenever that tactic is in play, you can know that the enemy is not far away. Effectively, and I'll say this as a quick footnote, I've mentioned it before, but if you're somebody who is wrestling through these issues about Scripture's reliability and whether or not you can believe the Gospels but not what Paul says, or you can listen to what Jesus' specific quotes are in the Gospels but not anything that Peter says, understand that Jesus didn't write the New Testament. He didn't write what we have recorded as what he said in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So if you're somebody who likes to think of themselves or you've heard of people say, I just believe what Jesus said, not that other stuff that the apostles said, how would you even know that Jesus said that? The same dopey apostles that you don't believe in apparently recorded Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John too. See, it's either they've got the authority of the Holy Spirit to say this is really what happened They lived at the same time. They had each other's gospels to compare and contrast. Or or it's just all a bunch of baloney. See, you can trust Scripture because Jesus is the one who said He was going to superintend the truth of Scripture. Jesus knows that this is a spiritual battle. He knows what He's heading into is a spiritual battle. And He concludes His address in this section of John, in preparation for where they're going next, which is going to be the Garden of Gethsemane and their Last Supper together. In verses 29 through 31, Jesus says, I've told you about this before it takes place so that when it does take place, you might believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Jesus has spoken his peace. And he's told them that the ruler of this world, some think that he's speaking of spiritual, the spiritual ruler, Satan himself. 
Some think he's talking about the Romans who are eventually coming to get him. It could be both. What we do know is that Jesus has encountered and engaged the devil at just about every point in his existence. And now he's saying that he has sovereignty, that this force has no power over him. He's claiming that this is a spiritual battle and that he has the upper hand. I love in this same verse, though, what we see about our subject of the day, which is loving God. Jesus shows his love for God the same way that he encourages us to. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Isn't that amazing? Jesus isn't saying, this is what I want you to do. I'm going to do differently. He's saying, this is how I show love to the Father. I follow his commands. I love him. I'm I'm intimate enough with him. Jesus wasn't insecure about his relationship with the Father. He wasn't obeying him to try to prove himself to the Father. He was showing the reality of his love for God that was birthed through fellowship with God. His obedience was the result of his intimate, loving relationship. We have this week begun a new journey in the chapel's history. We are trying to restore our front yard, which had a season of absolute abuse for all sorts of reasons. But one of the things that has been prevalent in our front yard over the past few months here at the church are dandelions. And it doesn't matter how many times we mow these bad boys, they come back. And sometimes if you mow them at the right time, they come back stronger. Uh, they, they like birth and rebirth, and the next thing you know, you got a yard full of dandelions. And so we've started the reconstruction of this yard, a new gardener, have we? So what's at stake here, though, is getting to the root of the problem. You can keep mowing over the dandelions, and that doesn't really solve the struggle. You say, I, I have a problem. Uh, I, I don't feel love for God. I don't want to obey God. What is the root of the problem? Well, the root of the problem is is that you don't love him because you don't know he loves you, because you aren't spending time immersed in his presence and his word, because you don't realize the truth about what Jesus has done for you, is doing for you, wants to do for you. This isn't a legalistic practice that you do where you check off boxes so that you can prove how spiritual you are to God or to anybody else. He's calling you to fellowship through the presence of His Spirit. That relationship will necessarily produce a greater hunger for honoring His presence and imitating His character and holiness, all as a means to expressing love for your Father. And I have to tell you that if you lack zeal for God, your first step of repentance needs to be reorienting your heart, mind, and life to fellowship with God through His appointed means of grace. That means intimacy with God's presence in prayer and immersion in God's proclamation through your meditation on His Word. Let's begin that process here as we take communion together.